herbicides, pesticides, combines, and push-button farming. The cost of inputs that farmers have to purchase uh, is going up more rapidly than the uh, prices that they receive for their uh, products. A conversation with Joe Anderson about the industrialization of American agriculture. And I speak with Jim Clifford, Project Coordinator for the Network in Canadian History and Environment. I'm Sean Courage. Welcome back from the summer break, and you're listening to episode 16 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. From 1945 to the early 1970s, technological innovations helped to transform American agriculture. The introduction of industrial chemicals and new machinery from U.S. farm operations in the decades after the Second World War ushered in what some historians have characterized as an agricultural revolution. These changes certainly altered food production and agricultural output. They also altered the practice of farming itself, leading ultimately to fewer farmers tending larger and larger farms. What caused farmers to adopt these new chemical and mechanical technologies? How did this affect the business of farming in the second half of the 20th century? What were the environmental and human health consequences of these substantial changes in agriculture? This is the subject of Joe Anderson's book, Industrializing the Corn Belt, Agriculture, Technology, and Environment, 1945-1972, to published by Northern Illinois University Press. He traces the major changes in U.S. agricultural history in the decades following the Second World War to try and understand what motivated farmers to adopt these new technologies and to understand how they responded to the environmental consequences of these new modes of food production. Joe joined me to talk about his research on the industrialization of the American Corn Belt. Joe Anderson, Mount Royal University, Department of Humanities. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Uh, We're here to talk about your book, Industrializing the Corn Belt, Agriculture, Technology, and Environment, 1945 to 1972. I wanted to start off just by asking you uh, how the project began and uh, what were some of the central questions that you were trying to seek answers to in this research on uh, industrialization and agriculture. Yeah, well, I think like a lot of projects, this came out of a personal space. I was um, employed at a museum that interpreted agricultural history, and we were very weak on 20th century interpretation, and we didn't do a lot of collecting there. We didn't do a lot of interpretation. And so I, when I started my Ph.D. program, I really thought this is something that I wanted to understand for myself, and I found that there wasn't a lot about written, written about farmers in particular and how they handled change and where their decisions came from and the pressures that were on them, both internal and external types of pressures. So it came out of that museum background and also, again, another personal thing, my family grew up farming during this time. So I think like many historians, there's some kind of personal connection to it. So, And you're mainly focused on Iowa in the book. Is your family from Iowa? You know, my dad's family's Iowa. My mom is from Missouri, but all central, central U.S. And I like Iowa because it is one of the most intensively cropped regions in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just not that there's a lot of wild in uh, the Midwest. People don't associate wild in the Midwest very often, but... Uh, there's a lot of corn. And if you drive through it, you see mile after mile of corn and soybeans and pasture. And uh, I just thought it's a good example, uh, a good case study Mm -hmm. of how this change can go down. 
Maybe we can talk about Iowa for just a second here. In what ways is is the example of Iowa and the Corn Belt uh, symptomatic of American agriculture during this period? And in what ways do you think it's extraordinary or exceptional? Yeah, I think there are a lot of things going on there. In some ways, Iowa is typical in that 160 to 300 acre farms. Uh, there's a lot of family agriculture there. It's the iconic white farmhouse, picket fence, red barn. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a lot going on there that's typical. Um, But Iowa's always been a little bit of an outlier, too. A little more prosperous than some of the other states, and certainly uh, prosperous within the region of the Midwest. And I thought it would really give a good showcase for how these tensions play out between large farmer, small farmer, um, Technological innovation for those who are going to specialize, technological innovation for those who want to keep doing what they had been doing uh, or farming like their parents did. So let's uh, let's get into some of what you cover in the book. Just to bring listeners up to speed, what are some of the main technologies uh, that you examine in this study of post-war agriculture in the United States? Yeah, I chose to emphasize two types of technological change, mechanical and chemical, which, of course leaves a lot of things at the door. Uh, But I thought these two types of changes were very profound in shaping the landscape. And while there are many other technologies that you could include, Mm -hmm. uh, I thought this would give give us a good way of looking at technological change, environmental change, as well as social change, too. Uh, So I liked the mechanical because during this time period, this really, even the tractors had been around for 20, 30 years in common in Iowa. Uh, They were, had a very limited use. Uh, They were used primarily for tillage. And after World War II, the tractor just booms in the number of applications that it can be used for. So pulling all sorts of implements that are now specifically designed to be used with a tractor. Uh, Tractors get bigger. You get to see see the trend towards giantism. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chemical change, you know, this stuff is what we always think of when we think of uh, post-World War II America. Um, But we always tend to think of it once the cow's out of the barn, mm-hmm. uh, we'll post Rachel Carson, how does this, how does this, uh, how do we deal with chemical change? And I thought it would be fun to look at the origins of that and how this suite of technology came to be adopted. And did you see interactions between the adoption of chemical technologies and the adoption of new mechanical technologies? There's great interplay there, although it is not always necessary interplay. Uh, A good example of how this goes down is with the mechanical technology of uh, making a hay crop. If you're going to feed cattle, uh, you have to have the forage. Well, the chemical technology of herbicide allows farmers to break loose of millennia-old practice of weed weed control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you start to spray that chemical you're no longer bound to that cycle of going through your field time after time. And what can you do? Well, for most farmers, they are able to uh, spend more time working on their forage crop. And so, broadly speaking, then, the book here is looking at the adoption of these new and arguably transformative technologies in post-war U.S. agricultural history, why then did farmers choose to adopt these new industrial chemical and mechanical technologies for agricultural production after the Second World War? What were their motivations? What drove them to do this? Yeah, there's there's a lot going on. Uh, one of the things that I argue is that there is a surge in um, 
prosperity. During the war and in the immediate aftermath of the war, farmers don't face what they faced after World War One, which is the price collapse, mm-hmm. in part because of government policy uh, that has supported it, and in part because of the war in Korea that uh, allowed farmers to stay more profitable than they ever could have imagined, uh, so that they have some money in their pockets. They come out of World War II with less debt than they had mm-hmm. uh, after World War One. Mm-hmm. So this kind of parent-child generational difference is tremendously important because farmers start looking at investing in their operations, the new machines, uh, the new operating costs that go with the chemicals. They look much more affordable. They look mm-hmm. more realistic to farmers. So there's that pressure that comes with prosperity and how you're going to spend the money that you have. And the other problem that is a long-term trend, really from 1945 up through the early 1970s when I conclude, is the cost-price squeeze. And that is simply that the cost of inputs that farmers have to purchase uh, is going up more rapidly than the uh, prices that they receive for their uh, products. So that leads to a pressure to try and do more, to gain economies of scale, to specialize, use more expertise. And you note in the book that one of the main cost price squeezes that occurs during this period is uh, labor. Uh, there are substantial labor uh, shortages at this period that That's are right. leading them into these techno- adopting these technologies. That's right. There's so many easier ways to make a living. Uh, you know, this immediate post-World War II period is the uh, really the triumph of unionized labor. So if you're going to get a good union job, maybe at the packing plant, mm-hmm. um, maybe at the auto plant, or, uh, if you're manufacturing farm machinery like so many people in the Midwest do, mm-hmm. uh, this is the time to get in on that, um, on that bonanza. So there's, there are a lot of more attractive options. Uh, Shane Hamilton's book, Trucking Country, details why uh, trucking looks good to a lot of farmers. Um, it's just a a better way to make a living. They have a little more independence. Uh, they're not tied to the high capital cost of so, the farm. So were the adoption of these technologies then ultimately business decisions? I, I lean towards that decision. I think there are a lot of other things too. Uh, there's a strong social component uh, that's going on here, and that comes out of 150 years of rhetoric about agrarian superiority. Mm-hmm. And we know that living conditions in the countryside, while in Iowa, were good. Uh, there's a big disparity mm-hmm. between city and country. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of folks were anxious to uh, step up. And so by spending a little more money, uh, you become a little bit more modern. And you can potentially uh, gain those economies of scale, get a little more income, think about sending your children to college or university. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there are a lot of things going on. And I tend to focus more on the business stuff, but by no means do I discount sure, these sure. other things that are happening. So do you see parallels then in terms of the adoption of labor-saving technologies in rural America with the adoption of labor-saving technologies in suburban and urban America? Yeah, I think there are a lot of great great comparisons that can be made there. That uh, It would be fun to look at this in a little broader perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're quite right. So to tie this in then to the war in the period before Uh, the period that you study here, is there a sense that there's pent-up consumer demand from agriculturalists for some of these products and these technologies uh, leading into the post-war period? Yeah, I think there really is. And and part of this comes out of 
the capitalist structure of advertising and marketing that really hits full stride mm -hmm. in that first third of uh, the 20th century, that uh, the cheap press, you've got um, these mega corporations like the international harvesters of the world, like the John Deere's of the world, uh, that not only are selling a productive tool, but they're also selling ideas, too, about where you see yourself in society. So I think there's, there's a lot to that as well. Okay. And, and are some wartime manufacturers transitioning in this period to producing uh, agricultural implements or chemicals? That's perhaps one of the biggest, uh, biggest dilemmas for the chemical industry that comes out of World War II. You, you see uh, DDT uh, used broadly everywhere mm -hmm. there is an insect population to control. Mm -hmm. And they're a, an industry in search of market. Mm -hmm. So the post-World War II golf course craze, the suburban redefinition of the suburban lawn, uh, not to mention uh, tens of thousands of acres uh, in the middle of the country mm -hmm. that are didn't know they were looking for chemicals. But turns out they're a great, uh, a great innovation that meets a lot of farmers' needs uh, and allows them to really transform the land. And there were... The some ways in which farmers used chemical pesticides like DDT that I found surprising that you document in the book, uh, and in particular, the reduction of fly populations due to their impact on cattle. Can you explain for listeners why it is farmers were using DDT to spray their cattle? Yeah, that, I, it's interesting. I, I was talking at a conference once, and the gentleman who served as the ch conference chair uh, prefaced his remarks by saying, when I grew up as a boy and was milking cows uh, during the summer, one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing was dodging that tail that might be caked with soft manure or hard manure, depending on the weather. Um, and no one really appreciated the torment of that the animals endured by being bitten by these flies, as well as the person who's milking the cows. Mm -hmm. uh, so every fly that bites a cow extracts a blood meal and that is a withdrawal that reduces milk production because the cow is spending more of its calories swishing the tail mm -hmm. and uh, swaying its head back and forth so again these things look like miracles uh, to the folks who are living through this time period uh, by all means spray your cattle uh, because you find that the production spikes now, you make a really strong case for uh, understanding this period of the adoption of the new, these new technologies as serving specific interests and needs of farmers, but you also uh, detail a little bit about the role of government and industry in terms of the dissemination and promotion of these kinds of technologies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I note that farmers had a lot of allies during this time period, and but they're allies with a little bit of tension. Uh, because they're in some ways trying to get farmers to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. and sometimes they want to change their behavior and sometimes they don't. So they're having to make a lot of choices there. Um, the allies include bankers who have the capital that farmers want to spend in the new confinement feeding operation. Mm -hmm. uh, they have uh, the extension professionals who have vested their lives in education and getting this scientific knowledge to farmers. You have the farm implement manufacturers, the chemical salespeople, who are all trying to make money. And many of them came from farm backgrounds, so they see a lot of these, uh, a lot of these technological changes as just unmitigated 
wonders. Boom. And uh, so farmers are really navigating a difficult course here, I think. And that's one of the things that I tried to bring out in the book, that none of this is a foregone conclusion, that these farmers do pick and choose. And a lot Mm -hmm. of farmers leave some things on the table. They adapt other things. However, the cumulative effect that by the early 1970s is uh, what's becoming clear to many farmers is it's more difficult to pick and choose and that this suite of technology is becoming increasingly integrated and increasingly necessary uh, for to be a, quote, modern farmer. So do you think by the end of this period, then, uh, farmers are becoming locked into the use of these particular technologies or dependent, their operations become dependent? I think they are. I think they are in many ways. Uh, And some of these are demographic factors as well. Mm -hmm. The farm population, especially starting in the 1960s on, becomes increasingly gray. Mm -hmm. And as the farm population ages, a lot of these technologies become increasingly necessary uh, because... They're just not able to do some of that physical labor that when we had a lot of young people on the farm, there was before World War II, there are a lot of itinerants, itinerant workers. There are a lot of hired men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could make the hay crop in that labor intensive manner. Now, by 1970s, you have a hay crop that you can literally make a giant round bale and you never touch the crop except to assess whether or not it's ready to harvest. Yeah. So, and you do a really good job in the book outlining the interaction between uh, technological innovation as well as transformation of the business of agriculture itself. And you have some really good statistics right out the gate uh, about the decline in the number of farms, but the increase in acreage. Can you talk a little bit about the interaction between these technologies and the changing practices of agriculture? Yeah, acreage is acreage increases in this very well, in general, it's increasing. There are a lot of uh, hills and valleys in that in that curve. But mm-hmm. yes, there are fewer and fewer people managing a gradually increasing uh, acreage base. Mm-hmm. And these technologies are are essential to it because if you are if you were farming in 1940 and you had 60 acres of corn or 80 acres of corn mm-hmm. uh, on a 240 acre farm. Well, now, if you have that same 240-acre farm, increasingly you're seeing 100, 120 acres of corn mm-hmm. uh, on that farm. And that's just a lot of riding back and forth on a tractor to cultivate that ground. Mm-hmm. So you, you can see how these, uh, how the herbicide becomes ever more important. And you can see that as you start to buy things like fertilizer, uh, which had not been part of most Iowa farmers' routine, it, manure was fertilizer, Mm-hmm. Uh, for them, unlike southern farmers and and people in other parts of the country, the more you spend on that fertilizer, the the more you increase the stakes for getting a good harvest. Mm-hmm. And the more you're willing to spend on some technology like the combine harvester. Uh, so that gets to a point you made earlier about the relationship between chemical and mechanical change, that some of these things that had been optional, well, if you if you purchase that combine for sixty thousand dollars then that's you're darn well better get the uh get the most possible yield you can out of there and that includes fertilizing beyond the 
wildest expectations of a lot of those extension professionals. So the capital input places pressure on an individual farmer to increase acreage and to increase production output to pay off that initial cost of whatever the machinery or the chemical technology that was adopted. But does the increased agricultural output during this period also result in price drops and the value of agricultural products? I think so. I think there's a lot going going on there to tie that together, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Everybody who wants to stay in farming is somehow getting on this treadmill. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it may be one technology, it may be another. uh, But you do see yields per acre increasing at the same time that you see acreage increasing. Right. Uh, so, again, that speeds up the treadmill uh, a little bit faster. And there are numerous examples of the interactions between chemical technologies and the mechanical technologies that you look at in the book. Um, but there's one in particular that I thought was really fascinating because I think you suggest in the book that farmers begin to adopt antibiotics as well as confinement livestock raising technologies together in a way that perhaps the manufacturers of those technologies didn't initially foresee that antibiotics ultimately become a substitute for sanitary conditions within confinement uh, uh, livestock raising. Yes, they, they never downplay sanitation, neither the farmers nor the experts, mm-hmm. but they just see the tremendous payoff of antibiotics with the growth-enhancing potential. And no one really saw this coming. The antibiotics were uh, simply to control things like scours, the Mm -hmm. bloody scours, which kills, in some cases, a third of all pigs that are born. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you get on the antibiotics to help cut that death loss, then all of a sudden you're finding out that there are unanticipated consequences of that, and you do get the accelerated growth in addition to saving the lives of those pigs. So Mm -hmm. when you put them on concrete uh, and you change the definition of the word confinement, Mm -hmm. uh, which in the early 1950s simply means feeding on a concrete lot to literally confining within a building and in some cases confining within particular stalls, uh, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. Mm -hmm. And one depends on the other. You cannot have a true modern-day 1970-era confinement feeding uh, system without the antibiotic feed in the eyes of most people. And then as the economies of scale for confinement feeding ramp up over this period, this uh, is one of the uh, most shocking or uh, uh, instances of the environmental consequences of these technologies, which is the waste problem. Right. So how do farmers deal with... Uh, increasing herds that are kept in smaller spaces, how do they deal with the waste during this period? You know, I don't know this, but the impression that I get from reading some of these extension accounts, when they travel out, an extension professional travels out to a feedlot or a confinement operation, is that in some ways the farmers are a little caught off guard, Mm -hmm. that they've always known two things. One, that Uh, Your animals are producing a tremendous amount of manure, and to use the colloquial colloquial expression, shit goes downhill. Uh, And I think they're surprised at the extent to which this happens, that Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there is a fish kill downstream. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or perhaps the municipality is doing their water test, and they're finding uh, that, in fact, E. coli counts are up. Uh, I think this surprises farmers a little bit. 
um, you read some of the letters that they write and they're talking about how natural this is, right? That manure is natural. Mm-hmm. And this is the way things have always been. But the difference that I don't think some of them are fully appreciating is the scale. And the scale makes a huge environmental difference. That's exactly right. And you found similar uh, unforeseen consequences of the adoption of chemical pesticides, for instance, which I think is a common narrative in environmental history. How did farmers react to some of the perceptions of negative consequences of using chemical pesticides like DDT? Well, a lot of farmers will uh, say that it's not necessarily their problem. Uh, You see a tension between large, more prosperous farmers, Mm -hmm. farmers who have done more specialization, and the smaller people who have maybe not as heavy a commitment. And some of these smaller farmers look and say, well, it may be true that I'm discharging some of these chemicals into the environment, but I'm, I'm small fry. Uh, you need to be focusing on these guys who have the large cattle operations, who have hundreds of acres rather than 40 acres in corn. Uh, so that you'll start to see a, a bit of a, a difference there. And it's kind of an age old problem. Some of it's not in my backyard type stuff. Some of it's who me, uh, but I think farmers are, it, are somewhat slow to come to, um, to come to the full appreciation of how these things happened. A, a great example uh, that I mentioned in the conclusion was uh, the link between uh, Parkinson's and the DDT and uh, dieldrin and all those chlorinated hydrocarbons uh, and the fact that there is suggestive research that long-term exposure to these things over a lifetime of farm work can in fact uh, potentially lead to Parkinson's. Now that research is, is ongoing But the comments from people who farmed and their children say, we had no conception Mm -hmm. that any of this might be a long-term harm. We saw that, yeah, you don't want to eat the stuff. (laughs) But the breathing, the dust, and the particulate matter that came out of there, no one was giving that a thought back in 1957. But there was early concern about growth hormones in cattle and the potential impact on the meat supply, was there not? There is. In fact, you see a lot of this starting in the 1950s, and it really hits full stride in the 1960s that uh, you start to get a concern about uh, residue Mm -hmm. and whether or not this residue of the growth hormones or the antibiotics, for that matter, too, is Mm -hmm. is of significant concern. Uh, so, yes, farmers are alerted to that. The farmer advocacy groups like the stockmen's groups or the pork producers, the cattlemen's groups, they are very sensitive to it. And they say, we have powerful technology. Let's preserve it mm-hmm. rather than lose lose it. Uh, so they see a lot of pressure coming from outside. And part of this is this post-World War II shift uh, towards consumer rights and the broadening definition of rights Mm -hmm. uh, in general. So, yeah, by the time you get uh, the Carter administration, people people are thinking in terms of the USDA as a consumer organization as much as as it is dedicated towards producers. And this is a big shift in terms of agriculture as a business having to deal with a federal level of regulation? That's right. That's right. Previously, farmers had seen... A lot of government involvement, certainly since 1933, as the paycheck that comes with uh, participation in government programs. And now it's government regulation. 
So from the vantage point of a historian then, looking at change over time during this period, what impact do you think these technologies had on, um, you characterize these as cultural methods of agricultural production? It seemed that uh, um, people working for the extension service and even uh, within advertisements for some of these technologies, there was an emphasis on trying to retain cultural practices for weed control in addition to the adoption of chemical control. Um, over the course of this period, uh, from your assessment, what happened to these cultural methods of agricultural production? Well, they're still there, but their relative importance fades for mm -hmm. a majority of farmers. Um, you can still find a lot of farmers doing cultural practices, but their importance relative to these other technologies changes. And the extension service, these experts, they're in a bit of a dilemma because they, because they are experts, they know some of the risks. Uh, they appreciate that not only do you lose the right to use the technology, but there, that there are health risks and that there are environmental consequences. But they also have a constituency a particular constituency that's broader than simply society at large. It's the farmers who have to make a living mm -hmm. and who want to do things like remodel their house mm -hmm. and put a, a bathroom inside rather than use the outhouse or install electricity, uh, which comes to full, uh, full potential on Iowa farms in the 1950s. So uh, they are walking a fine line too. They're telling people some of what they want to hear. They're in the awkward spot of telling them, don't discard some of these cultural techniques. Mm -hmm. Take the manure out of the barnyard. Mm -hmm. Don't let it sit there. Uh, they're saying, don't forget about cultivating weeds or mowing pastures as weed control. Uh, but when you need to, use the chemicals. So it's a tough spot. Right. And the chemicals, especially in the case of herbicides, proved to be so effective early on. But as you describe in the book, uh, there are microevolutionary practices uh, that occur during this period that gradually over time make the herbicides, for instance, less effective. That's right. If, if you're one of those who believe in this crazy thing like evolution, uh, <laughs> you do find that in a very short period of time, both the insects and the plants... Um, develop resistance or tolerance to mm -hmm. the chemicals. And in the case you mentioned earlier, the fly campaign, uh, you know, it's very difficult to eliminate a population that has a, a short life cycle, sometimes of days. Uh, so, yeah, you're in, you're in deep trouble uh, when you're trying to eliminate a pest population. In the terms, in, you mentioned the, the weed populations, you can suppress a population and you open what many environmental historians have talked about, which is an mm -hmm. ecological vacuum. Mm -hmm. And so a plant or insect species can move in mm -hmm. that tolerates that chemical. And is this what makes the dependence on these technologies perpetual to some extent? The, you continuously have to find new herbicides, pesticides to address, and antibiotics uh, to try and catch up with these microevolutionary changes? I, I think for a lot of farmers it does become inevitable. But, of course, as historians, we, we try and take the contrarian viewpoint that none of this is inevitable mm -hmm. and that, in fact, cultural techniques still work. Uh, and that's in part where I end the book, which is talking about the fact that there is a reaction 
to this triumph of industrialization. Mm-hmm. And some people say, we're going to use some of these industrial techniques, but we're also not going to forget about cultural techniques like weed control. So when you have, uh, now we're on a different generation of water hemp resistance to glyphosate herbicides. That's the big late 1990s, 2000s uh, problem. Well, the rotary hoe and the cultivator still manage to get those weeds, but it becomes a question of how much fuel are you going to spend to run the tractor? How much is your labor worth when you do your cost analysis uh, to compare spending your time on the tractor versus the time for the new and improved herbicide? So it's a very, very complicated calculus for most farmers that uh, requires a level of sophistication that most folks in 1945 could never have seen coming. So would you characterize this period in American history as an agricultural revolution? Well, I would, but I would also be careful to say that a lot of the seeds are sown for this early. Mm. Um, Early on, uh, I look at the work of Deborah Fitzgerald, a significant historian of American technology, Mm -hmm. and she talks about industrialization in the West and that it takes place in an earlier time period. Uh, She locates a lot of that in the 1920s. Uh, There are a lot of good reasons why it doesn't happen in Iowa until after World War II that we've already addressed, but... uh, so there are antecedents to it, and if you start to stretch out the time period, it looks a little less revolutionary. But using some raw measures in terms of number of farms in 1945 versus the early 1970s, uh, looking at the proliferation of some of these tools like combines, mm-hmm. the growth of confinement feeding, the millions of pounds of fertilizer, chlorinated hydrocarbon insecticide and herbicide it's just revolutionary from that perspective Mm -hmm. and then i guess in terms of growth of the human population growth of the population of the united states in the post-war period the interconnections between these changes in agriculture and questions about the social and political history of the united states do you feel like those connections have been adequately made by historians or are we beginning to start to put these stories together There are some folks who have done it and done it well, but I really think this is fertile ground. I can't believe I just used that. (laughs) Uh, But this is really a growth area, I think, for historians of political economy, environment, uh, technology. I think there's a lot of great work that is being done uh, and that can be done there. And then I guess to conclude, uh, to talk a little bit about contemporary changes, um, and you touch on it a little bit in the conclusion, but uh, an emergence of an organic uh, agricultural movement in the late 20th, early 21st century, do you see that as a backlash or a response to industrialization in agriculture? I do, and I would be even more specific. It's a backlash towards a few particular characteristics of that industrialization. Mm. So when I spoke with an organic farmer from uh, western Iowa, uh, she was telling me that when she was getting started in this time period, the mid-1970s, the people who were farming organic then had had a particular problem. And that problem was someone had been poisoned. Maybe their cattle had had gotten into a bag Mm -hmm. of insecticide, Mm -hmm. and they'd had some sort of livestock loss. Uh, It came from a real concrete experience rather than a great theoretical commitment. Um, It was grounded in a a particular day that 
something changed for them. And so it's a reaction in part to industrialization, but I think it's a very selective uh, selective reaction that you can do some of these things um, like not use herbicide or not use right. the insecticide, but you still might use the combine to harvest your corn. Uh, so again, I think that really backs up the, one of the central points of these books. Of this book is that this change is contingent, mm-hmm. and there are opportunities for different trajectories to develop. Well, for listeners who are interested in picking up a copy of the book, it's called Industrializing the Corn Belt, Agriculture, Technology, and Environment, 1945 to 1972. Joe Anderson, thanks for joining us. Sean, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's the start of a new school year, and the Network in Canadian History and Environment is seeking new project ideas. If you have an idea for a project that will help disseminate research in environmental history, or you have a concept for a way for environmental history researchers to make better connections with one another, then Niche wants to hear from you. Niche recently announced its fourth annual Call for Projects, a yearly effort to seek out new, one-time projects in environmental history. Proposal details are available now at niche-canada.org, and the deadline for applications is October 25th, 2010. To learn more about Niche's projects, I spoke with the new project coordinator for the network, Jim Clifford. I'm Jim Clifford, and I'm the new uh, Toronto-based project coordinator with the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. Uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about what your responsibilities are as a network or a project coordinator for Niche? Well, this is a brand new position, so it, it's still sort of developing on the fly, but I, I can give you a broad overview of uh, what we envision I'm going to work with Adam Krimble, who's staying on as the uh, webmaster for the Niche website to uh, to develop more content, more kinds of content for the website. Um, right now, it, it's often used uh, for a lot of announcements, calls for papers, uh, announcements about lectures happening in various cities across the country. But we'd like to uh, to get more blog type material and even uh, short essays about environmental history uh, to give our members a reason to, uh, to come and build sort of an online community around the website and visit uh, more frequently. Um, beyond the, the website, I, I'm also going to be working with uh, our membership and our partners to uh, help develop projects and to help, uh, help the projects that are ongoing to uh, be completed in a timely manner. Uh, so... You know that that's where the job is really at its uh, its broadest description. I'm, I'm going to have to figure out in the months ahead exactly how I can be useful to to our members who are working on projects or have project ideas and and, and want to pitch them to Niche. So and beyond that, I'll be working with uh, Alan McEachern, the director, uh, on on thinking about the future of Niche. Uh, the money will run out in about four years, so. Niche needs to start thinking over the next year or so about uh, what happens next, uh, and, and I'll be helping with that process. So what projects are you currently working on as you are starting out in this new position as the project coordinator? So as uh, people will be able to read in the newsletter that, uh, that I'll be sending out in the next few days, 
uh, one of my first initiatives is to start uh, following all the blogs that are currently written by uh, our members. And what I'm hoping is that uh, our members will allow me to repost some of the, the best uh, blogs each week on the Niche website and, and to create sort of a group blog, uh, not uh, well similar to uh, the Active History website that I helped found uh, about a year and a half ago. So with that in mind, even if you don't have your own blog and you would like to maybe just contribute every few months or so or you see something in the news that uh, that connects to your own research project or you had a, a great day in the archives and you just want to tell everybody about it, um, you can also send blog posts to me directly via email and I can post them up on the website for you. So it sounds like you're trying to get uh, more community engagement from the niche membership uh, with the website so that it isn't just a stopping point for getting information about conferences or calls for papers or jobs. That's exactly it. Over the past uh, few years, people have been involved with niche. Uh, you can remember the early website and, and see just how uh, impressive the change has been. Uh, Bill Turkell and Adam Crimble have worked pretty tire tirelessly over the past few years uh, to create this, this great digital infrastructure. And uh, a big part of my job is just to help the community, the, the niche membership, to start really engaging with this uh, great tool we now, now have available to us. So um, what are you looking for for members then? What kind of contributions would you like to uh, get? So obviously any kind of uh, blog content would be really uh, a great place to start. Beyond that, I'm also going to be soliciting short uh, essays, something a bit longer than a blog, three to 4,000 words. Uh, so if you have a, a conference paper that you don't know what to do with, that you think might be interesting to a, a broader readership, uh, you can get in touch with me about that. And then beyond the, uh, the website, I, I'd also like to talk to anybody who has an idea for a, a niche project. We're going to announce the uh, fourth annual uh, call for projects for uh, funding in this uh, upcoming newsletter. So if you have an idea and you're not entirely sure how it could fit in with Niche, uh, before you do the application, you can uh, get an e email or phone contact with me. And uh, I can talk to you about the, the kind of projects that Niche has funded in the past and, uh, and help you through the uh, the application process. So if there's a listener out there who uh, wants to make a contribution, then how should he or she get in touch with you? Well, I can be reached by uh, email. I'm, I'm still using my Gmail account because I'm waiting for a University of Western account. So my, e my Gmail account is cljim22 at gmail.com. And we'll link to that on the show notes for this episode. For any listener who wants to get in touch with Jim Clifford, the new niche project coordinator in the Toronto area. Jim, I want to thank you for joining us today. All right. Thanks a lot, Sean. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Joe Anderson, Jim Clifford, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. 
For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. If you have ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.